Over the next few weeks, I want us to look uh, briefly at, at a few stories, three stories that follow the Christmas story in Luke's gospel. Um, and I think these stories, they really help to pull the veil back upon Jesus' identity and his, his work, what he came to do. And so we're going to start this morning by looking together at Luke chapter 2, verses 21 through 40. If you can turn there in your Bible or you can find it on the uh, insert that's in your bulletin. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 21. This is God's holy and inerrant word. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise him, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he had been conceived. When the time of their purification, according to the law of Moses, had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them, and said to Mary his mother, the child, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then was a widow until she was eighty-four. She never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's go before him now and ask for his help. Our merciful and gracious Heavenly Father, we do come at this moment to ask for your help, to ask that you would give to us an increase of your spirit, that we might understand your word this morning, that it would be applied to our lives and to our hearts in order that we would not leave this place the same, but that you would comfort us, that you would encourage us, that you would even rebuke and challenge us with your word. Father, as we come together before your word, we confess that even as we walked in this place this morning, we all come from different places in life, we're all facing different things in this life. We come as individuals, individuals who are anxious, individuals who 
are burdened with the cares of this world, individuals who have great many questions, even those individuals who doubt the truth of your word that we just read. There are some of us who come this morning and feel beat down and broken in our own lives. We look at our lives and we see this huge gulf, this great distance between what we claim to be and what we actually are. Still others come excited and thankful to be with family and friends on this day, longing to know you better, to be close to you, and at the same time there are those who wonder if you'll ever draw close again. Feel like they've been asking again and again, How long, O oh Lord, will it be till you turn your face towards me again? Father, however, we come this morning before your word. We pray that now you would help us to see and understand that we're really all the same. Because the truth is, we're all far more broken, far more sinful, more fallen more corrupt than we could really ever imagine. And so we need together, despite what we might be facing in our lives individually, we need together to hear of what we all need. Because we all need the wonderful good news of the gospel. We need to know that though we are far more broken than we can imagine, that because of Jesus and His person and work, we are far more loved, and far more secure, and far more approved of than we could have ever dreamed possible. So we pray that you would help us to see this good news this morning. Help us to apply it to our lives. That we might be changed for our own good and for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When I was in college, my parents had moved to California for a couple of years. And during one summer... While I was in college, I had the opportunity to go back and visit them, and they lived a few hours north of Los Angeles. And when I got there, my mom told me, you know, you and your brother and sisters, you have to go see this one particular beach. Uh, It's so beautiful. And so she gave us the directions, and one morning we got up together, and we were going to go out uh, to see this beach that my mom had described to us. And But you see, in this part of California, like a lot of parts in California, if you've been there, just have this ridiculous fog in the morning, right? And so, I mean, the fog cuts visibility down so significantly. It's like, at times, you can just see 50 feet in any direction. And that was one, this was one of those mornings. So we drove out carefully in the fog, and we followed the directions, and we got to this place. But everything was blanketed in this fog, and you just, you couldn't see anything. And then, you know, eventually the sun rose and the, uh, the wind picked up and eventually dispelled all that fog. And all of a sudden, the beauty of where we were standing was revealed to us in a moment, right? I mean, the hills and the rocks and the trees and all that kind of stuff and the rocks that were coming down into the ocean and the, the seals that were on the, uh, on the rocks getting sprayed by the ocean mist and all that kind of stuff. And I, I could go on, but it was when the fog lifted that the beauty was revealed, right? And this, I think, is what is happening in this story amidst all these ceremonies that are described and the prophecies of 
Simeon and Anna, the fog is getting peeled back, right, and revealing the beauty of Jesus to us. And this really is my prayer this morning, that you will see this morning, that all of us will see and behold the beauty of Jesus. Because listen, when you find yourself captured by the beauty of Jesus, and when you understand who He is and what He came into this world to do for you, and when you trust in that, it will change you. It will bring real freedom and joy and even beauty into your life. So here are the three points that I want us to consider this morning as we go through this passage. I want to answer this question, who is this child? First, he is righteous. And second, he is the Savior. And third, he is a dividing point in the world. So first, Jesus is righteous. There are actually four ceremonies that are mentioned here in, in these verses. The ceremony of circumcision on the eighth day after birth the purification ceremony for Mary that was 40 days after the birth, the presentation of the firstborn male children, and the dedication of the firstborn to the Lord's service. All those are packed in here together. And in mentioning these these ceremonies, Luke, he goes out of his way in this passage to repeatedly tell us that everything was done according to the law. Right, five times in these verses he says that. Verse 22, when the time of their purification According to the law of Moses had been completed. Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Verse 23, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Verse 24, in keeping with what is said in the law of Moses. Verse 27, to do for him what the custom of the law required. Verse 39, when Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord. You know, I take the time to mention all those references because it's obviously a big deal for Luke to have drawn so much attention to the, to the fact that everything was done according to the law. He's saying not one thing was missed, not one thing was overlooked. There was not one mistake. From the very beginning, even as an infant, Jesus was righteous in keeping with the law. Now, most of us hear this, and um, we hear about Jesus' righteous keeping of the law, and we might affirm that that's a, a good thing. We probably do affirm that, but we don't immediately see it as something beautiful. I mean, it doesn't immediately make our hearts sing, does it? Why, why is that? I think that it might be because when we hear the word law, we hear rules, or we think rules, lists of do's and don'ts, right? And if that is where your mind goes, I, I think it's very natural that you wouldn't see the beauty here. Rules like that, they feel lifeless and empty and arbitrary and even burdensome. So I want to try and give you another way to think about what is being said here when Luke draws our attention to Jesus keeping the law of Moses. I don't know if you remember this, but I remember a lot of these things because we have young children and it's constantly triggering these old memories for me. But I used to love those activity books that had the connect the dots things in it, you know. So you open to one page and it's just this page full of random dots, right? And and the job was to find the number one dot and then start there and you connect all the dots in in sequence, right? And so eventually when you're done, what at first appeared to just be a page full of random dots becomes a picture of something. You you know, if you look at the law in the Old Testament and, and see nothing but rules, it's like looking at a page of dots, right? It's lifeless, it's empty, it's arbitrary. There's nothing beautiful about that. But in reality, the law of the Old Testament, when you connect the dots, it is meant to give us a picture of a kind of life, right? A life of meaning, a life of connectedness, a life of beauty, a life of integrity. The law of the Old Testament really gives us an outline. It gives us a silhouette 
right? It, it, it get a picture of a kind of life. And the problem, however, is, is that no one ever saw it all fleshed out. No one ever saw all the dots connected, right? No one ever saw it all come together embodied in a life until Jesus came. I, mean, I want to encourage you to read through the Gospels and look at the life of Jesus. His whole life was lived according to the law, and most definitely not just the external keeping of the law. It, Jesus lived according to the law inside and out. In Him you see it all come together with no contradictions. Right? He is, he is resented as strong and true, but at the same time full of tenderness and grace. He's perfectly holy. And perfectly compassionate. His life is full of integrity and full of mercy. You see him living with passionate purpose, right? Following the will of his Father. And at the same time, he's full of joy and peace. He's feasting with the broken and the destitute and enjoying the full favor of his Father. And the more you look at his life, and the more you see everything come together in him, the more you will find yourself thinking... I want to know a person like that. I want to be near a person like that. Because it's beautiful because you've never seen it anywhere else. You've never seen what man was really meant to be outside of Jesus. But not, not only when you see this, will you want to know Jesus and be close to that beauty, but you will begin to want to become a person like that. I mean, there is nothing higher or more beautiful. Luke, when he draws our attention to Jesus, even from infancy, keeping the law, he is pointing us to the beauty of Jesus. It's not just a matter of empty rules and don'ts and do's and all that kind of stuff. Jesus gives us the full picture. This is what man was meant to be. The life that radiates the dignity and the wonder and the glory of the image of God is embodied in Jesus. He came and he connected all of those dots and fleshed out the beauty of the righteous life lived before God. Second, this child we are told in this passage, he's also the Savior, right? In several ways, Luke is telling you that the story of Jesus is the story of the long-awaited Savior. You see, he's pointing you not just to the beauty of Jesus in his righteousness, but also his work, that he is the Savior. I mean, this we are being told is the story of of all stories, right? In verse 21, Luke draws our attention to the name given to Jesus, right? At a circumcision. He reminds us that this name of Jesus is the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. I mean, the name was important. The Greek rendering is Jesus, but the Hebrew is Joshua, right? But the name had a meaning, right? Literally, his name meant Jehovah or Yahweh, the Lord saves. Even his name tells the story that broken humanity had been waiting for. The Lord has come to save. The Lord has come to deliver and to rescue. You know, there's obviously a lot in this passage that we're not going to get to this morning. But in this passage, we have the story of this man named Simeon. Right? And God had promised him that he wouldn't die until he'd seen the Lord's Christ or the Lord's Messiah. And so moved by the Spirit, Simeon came and he saw Jesus. And he opened his mouth in praise. And the heart of the praise is really verse 30. Because in that little clause there, Simeon is saying, the whole reason for my praising is that my eyes have seen your salvation. To see Jesus is to see salvation. Again, it's the story of the long-awaited Savior. And then, of course, this prophetess, 
Anna. When she saw Jesus, she started speaking to everyone about the redemption of Jerusalem. I mean, he was just several weeks old. I mean, surely they didn't understand it all. They didn't know exactly how he was going to accomplish this work of salvation. But the fog, I'm telling you, was being peeled back. This one came to redeem, to buy back and to release from captivity those in bondage to sin and death. And the scope of all of this, it's huge. Look, when Simeon tells us that Jesus is a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel in verse 32, he is saying that salvation is going to come through Israel, but he has come to redeem more than the nation of Israel. This is the story of all stories. He has come to redeem the entire world. You know, one of my favorite quotes comes from G.K. Chesterton who wrote, Fairy tales are more than true, not because they tell us that dragons exist, but because they tell us that dragons can be beaten. I mean, I don't know if you realize this or not, but the echo of every beautiful story that captures your heart is this story of Jesus who came to save the world. I mean, there is a reason the classic fairy tales never get old and they keep getting passed down. It's because they are more than true, right? We know this deep in our bones that beauty, beauty has to come and she has to love the unlovable beast before he can ever become lovable, right? right? Sleeping beauty's death, it really can be softened to a sleep from which she awakes, Right, Cinderella, she will not be forgotten. I read these stories to my girls all the time. Cinderella will not be forgotten. Her prince will come for her and take her to be with him forever. The good stories, they are stories of salvation, stories of redemption, stories of hero saving. You know, when Simeon saw Jesus, he didn't say, I'm overjoyed because someone has finally come and shown me how to save myself. I mean, that wouldn't have been reason for joy at all. He didn't say, yes, finally someone to teach me how to be better. He didn't say, yes, this is wonderful, a little help from Jesus, and I can climb up out of the muck and mire on my own. No, he says, my eyes have seen your salvation. To see Jesus is to see salvation. Jesus came to save. He didn't come to help you. He didn't come to help you become a better person. He came to save you. He came to deliver his bride from death. He came to love you so fully and so faithfully and so completely that you would be totally transformed. Take a, let's take a stab at some honesty for a second. We, when, when it comes to the Bible, we, there's a lot of questions that we have that don't get answered in the Bible, right? I, I mean, how can God be totally sovereign and yet man be completely free and responsible? I mean, how does one God exist in three persons? How can Jesus be one person and yet have these two fully distinct natures? 100% man, 100% God, right? We have a lot of these questions that the Bible just assumes for us, but doesn't really answer in its entirety. But I think there's a big personal one that if you live long enough, you're going to have to wrestle with deeply at some point in your life. And it's this, why is there such evil and suffering in pain and injustice in this world if God really is good and all-powerful? You know, and the Bible doesn't answer it directly. It just assumes that it's true. The world is broken. It's full of suffering and injustice and pain. And yet at the same time, it assumes that God is totally good and totally powerful. And I want to suggest to you that it's not because 
we won't have an answer to that one day. It is because the Bible, the story that God has given us, it is answering an, enti- an entirely different question than that. See, the question the Bible is answering from beginning to end is, what is a good and all-powerful God going to do about all the brokenness, the pain, and the suffering, and the injustice in this world? And the answer to that question is that He sent His Son to be a Savior, to rescue His bride, to redeem the world, to slay the dragon of sin and death, and deliver His people. That's the story of the Bible. Every question we have is an answer, but this is the story of all stories, that if you get it, it will make your heart heart sing if you trust in it. Now, finally, who is this child? He is a dividing point. Are all these promises of fulfillment here in this passage, right? The fulfillment of Jesus keeping the law perfectly. The the fulfillment of the long-awaited Savior coming into the world. But in the midst of all of that, there's this ominous note that's struck. Not everything is going to go smoothly. Not everything is going to go well. Jesus is going to divide people, right? Many will rise and fall on account of him, we read. Though he is the Christ, he is going to be spoken against, right? And a sword is going to pierce the very heart of Mary when she witnesses her son's rejection. A man named Daryl Bach, he wrote a, a great commentary on the Gospel of Luke, and he wrote that, a consistent note about Jesus' ministry is that it divides people into two groups. You see, if you are indifferent to Jesus, you haven't really met Jesus. You've imagined a Jesus that isn't the one in the Bible. I mean, you think through his entire ministry, and no one was indifferent to Jesus. People either loved him or hated him. They wanted to crown him or they wanted to kill him. They either rejected him or they submitted to him. But nothing in between. Jesus is constantly forcing you off the fence. He forces you and me to make a choice. There is something about the beauty of Jesus' righteousness. Something about the beauty of his mission to come and redeem the world that divides humanity. Right? Some, there's something about Jesus, it, who Jesus is and what he came to do that reveals what's really in our hearts. I mean, that's what verse 35 is saying. So that, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. The question is, what is it about Jesus that triggers hate or love, but nothing in between? A desire to shut him up and silence him forever? Or, or leave everything and follow him, but nothing in between? I want to flesh this out with a story for you, because... Like Daryl Bach says in his commentary, you see this all over the New Testament. In Luke chapter 5, just a couple of chapters later, Jesus went out and he found this man, and this man's name was Levi, right? He was a thieving, hated, despised tax collector, a betrayer of his people. But Jesus came and he found Levi. And when Levi met Jesus, he left everything and followed Jesus, right? You can't be indifferent to Jesus. And then Levi, he threw this huge party and he invited all of his rotten, messy friends to come and meet Jesus. Right? Meanwhile, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they were there. And they were asking, why does Jesus eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And the word sinners in your Bible is actually in quotes because it's a technical word. The Pharisees were saying, what is he doing with these people who are obviously beyond redemption, so wicked that they are outside of God's saving grace. And Jesus said to them, 
Some of you remember this story. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. They hated that response of Jesus. Here's Levi inviting all of his friends to come and meet this Jesus. But they hated that response. Just a few verses later, Luke tells us that they began to plot Jesus' death after this. They wanted to shut him up and silence him forever. Do you know why Jesus was either hated or loved, rejected or followed? Do you know why some people left everything to follow him and others just wanted to kill him and shut him up forever? One word. Grace. I mean, that's, grace is either life to you or it is death to you. Look, if you have worked so hard in this life, and you think that you are better than everyone else around you, and if you think that God owes you something because you are such a nice woman or such a nice man because you know your theology and all your catechism answers and whatever it is for you, and because you've really tried to keep all the rules, you will constantly be forced to run again and again to your resume, and it is going to kill you. You will want to silence and get rid of Jesus because he did not come into this world for those who think they are healthy and righteous. He came for sinners. And the truth is that that's what some of you here are. You got the good theology, you got the good reputations, you got the good values, but you aren't friends with Jesus. You don't love him. He's an example and a a teacher to you. Your righteousness is keeping you so far from Jesus. Grace is killing you. But here's the good news. The gospel says that it really is okay that you're not okay. You have something actually to sing about and rejoice about and party about like Levi. If you know you've blown it. If you know you're a mess. If your life is full of inconsistencies. And you know that you're sick and unrighteous. Jesus didn't come into this world for the righteous. He came for those who have lost at life. He came for those who've blown it, for those who know they're not okay, for those who are in desperate need, not of a teacher or an example, because they need a leg up. But these people are desperately in need of a Savior to come and do everything for them. The story of the Bible is the story of what the good and all-powerful God is doing about the brokenness of the world and the brokenness of you and me. Why was His righteous keeping of the law so important? Because for those of you who know you're not okay, and you can't live up to that, He came and in your place lived the life you could not live. I mean, how did this hero of the story come and slay the dragon of sin and death? He went to a cross in your place and died the death you should have died. I mean, here's the true offense of grace and of the gospel. Jesus didn't come into this world just to pursue sinners. He didn't come into this world just to be friends with sinners or party with sinners. Jesus came into this world perfectly beautiful, perfectly righteous, and He came to become sin for us. And if you think you are decent, that is deeply offensive that the Son of God would have to become sin for you in order for you to have life. But if you know you're wicked, it makes your heart sing. I'm going to end with one of my favorite stories. Um, Ten years ago, I was invited to speak at this youth camp um, that was just a little bit uh, north of Memphis in Atoka or something like that. And in the middle of the week, the whole camp, all these young little kids, they went to Liberty Land when there still was a Liberty Land, right? And... um, 
it was, I remember it being like July, and it was just brutally hot out there. And if you've been to Liberty Land, you know, you ride all the rides in like 10 minutes, and then you're done. Um, so, so I had done that, and I got my Prano Pup and my Sprite or whatever, and I sat down on this bench, you know, in the shade or whatever. And I'm sitting there, and all of a sudden I notice people pointing and laughing and giggling. And at first, I was really, really thankful they weren't laughing at me because that does happen a lot. But these people were pointing and looking at something else and making fun of something else. And they had these, you know, those mist machines that they have, you know, the sprinkler or whatever, and you kind of go through them to cool off because it's so hot out there. And in this little mist machine, there was a father playing with his daughter in that mist machine. And she, this poor little girl, she was terribly deformed. On one side of her body, her arm and her leg were at least twice as large as they were on the other side of her body. And everyone was pointing and laughing. And at first it just, it made me angry. I I mean, that people would be doing that to this girl. Sorry. (laughs) But, you know, then all of a sudden I realized that she could care less. I mean, she was oblivious to it all. I mean, she was in, you know, the little pool of water, right, that forms under these mist machines, right? She's splashing and laughing with her father. He's picking her up and putting her on his shoulders. And she doesn't care what anybody else is doing. Because she has the, she has the smile of her father. And that's all that matters to her. I mean, she had his love and his acceptance and his delight. Who cared about anything else? I mean, love like that, when you get it, it will change you. I mean, beauty like that will come into your life and it will heal you. It will set you free. It will transform you. Jesus, the righteous Savior, he's the dividing point. And I'm asking you this morning, what does Jesus reveal about your heart? Are you offended by grace? I mean, staring and pointing and mocking those sinners, those tax collectors, they're not like me. Grace is killing you if that is you. Or are you dancing in the delight of your father because you know that it's okay that you're not okay? Because Jesus came to save sinners, the unrighteous. I've gone a little long this morning, but let me just give you three quick applications. One, if you're indifferent to Jesus, know that you are not dealing with the real Jesus. You have invented a Jesus who is safe and tame, and and I encourage you to spend time in the Scriptures to get to know the real Jesus, who is not tame or safe, but who is full of beauty and full of grace. And second, we always live. You and I, we always live out of our identity. What we do, what we say, what we think, it springs up out of, out of a result of who we are. And if your identity is in the person and work of Jesus, in the beauty of Jesus, it is going to get fleshed out in your life. Not only will the good news of the gospel set you free and give you a reason for joy, but it will bring real beauty into your life and you will start becoming like Jesus because you always live out of your identity. And then last, the gospel rightly understood and believed always moves outward. Right? Levi, when he met Jesus, 
He threw a party, and he didn't invite all the pretty people, all the good people. He went out and found all of his messed up, broken, fallen friends and had a party with Jesus. Anna, the prophetess, in verse 38, when she met Jesus, immediately she started talking to everyone around her, is what the text says, about the redemption that Jesus came to bring. So I'm asking you, are you resting in grace? And is it changing your life? Is it moving you outward? Is the beauty of Jesus making you more beautiful? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Father, sometimes it is hard for us to hear your word because if we're honest, grace does offend us. It offends us because it says that we have not measured up. We are not okay in and of ourselves. It comes to us and says that we need the perfect righteousness of Jesus if ever we're going to be accepted. It says to us that we are so broken and so fallen that nothing short of the death of God Himself could rescue us. But Father, I pray that this grace, this gospel, this good news would make our hearts sing. Because not only do we see that the Son of God had to die for us, but that He was willing to die for us. That He wanted to die for us. That He is the hero of every story. He came into this world to rescue. He came into this world to save and to deliver. Father, we pray that the beauty of Jesus would settle upon our hearts, that it would indeed become a part of our identity that it would become our whole identity. And that we in turn would become your beautiful people following our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we do pray. Amen.